This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. And our topic today is the urban church, understanding your neighbor in the urban church. And my guest is Zion McGregor, who is a contributing writer and author to an award-winning book known as Urban Apologetics. And you can go ahead and hand it to me here. I'll flash it at the... Camera, Urban Apologetics, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel. It's edited by Eric Mason, who is a graduate of the seminary here at Dallas. But Zion is a graduate of Southwestern, showing that we you know, don't show preferences and that kind of thing. THM at Liberty, so he's well-traveled, and a church planner at Mission City Church in Grand Prairie, Texas. And Zion, it is a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to do it. So um, so my opening question to someone who's new to the table is, how did a nice guy like you get in a gig like this? So uh, tell us about your background and how you ended up being interested in this topic. Absolutely. Uh, born and raised in the African American church and in the Baptist tradition of the National Baptist Convention. Uh, was called to ministry in 95 while in college. Uh, and along the way, just matriculated in my learning and development, went to seminary. Uh, met Blake Wilson, my pastor. Uh, and through Blake, I was able to connect with Eric Mason. We began to build a relationship. Um, and just organically, really, many of the people that are uh, in the book organically we were all beginning to be sensitive to what was happening around the country with um, some of what we'll be talking about with various um, black religious identity cults and we were individually beginning to read and study and just organically Eric Mason reached out to me and asked me if I would contribute and I've been a part of Urban Apologetics ever since. Okay, so let's, I mean, normally when we think of apologetics, we think about the defense of the faith and those mm -hmm. kinds of questions. But you put urban before the word apologetics, and that raises it, well, what in the world does that mean? Let's talk about the urban church first for a second. Um, talk, when we talk about the urban church, what exactly are we talking about, and why is it important to understand uh, the urban church and, and kind of um, the experience that urban churches go through? Right. Uh, historically, the term urban usually speaks to city uh, settings and whatnot as opposed to rural. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know when or how or why, but urban began to, as related to the church, began to be code language for black and brown churches. Mm -hmm. um, but what really I would say the urban church speaks to are churches that really are engaged in more of the inner city work. And that mm -hmm. can be a black church, white church. The ethnicity really doesn't matter. It just, for whatever reason, has become code. Uh, but but so that's the first thing I would say. So the urban church is really those churches that are in these urban settings that are trying to basically engage the communities with the gospel. Uh, and as it relates to is that the right term or whatnot, um, I mean, that's debatable. Mm -hmm. uh, in my context, we use urban uh, 
to denote, you know, black and brown situations. Um, so, but it, I'm sure you will find, like anything, people all spectrum. Some will have a problem with it. Some won't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 it really is dealing with inner city issues. And I take it that, mm-hmm. generally speaking, inner city churches are dealing with a full array of black brown experience in such a way Absolutely. that's a little bit distinct from, say, the average, if we say, suburban church Absolutely. that we think about. So mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. What's the nature of that difference? Well, some of the differences with the more urban context is that these are urban contexts where uh, there tends to be a little bit more uh, – The first of all, the – the tax bracket mm-hmm. is different, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, the economic situation uh, is one that, like with anything else, presents challenges to just day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. These challenges uh, eventually have a tendency to spiral out and cause one to either gravitate toward faith or have a hostility toward faith and religion mm-hmm. because of their circumstances. Uh, so that that's some of the kind of what's at the root of it. I mean, we could go, we we really don't have to go through the various challenges. I mean, that's pre- pre- documented uh, as to if you're in a, more, a poor community, uh, but not all urban churches are poor. You mm-hmm. have some ur- you have an urban context that can be urban and middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the challenges even in those in the climate that we're living in, as Christianity is in retreat in the West. Uh, we're finding challenges in the urban context uh, more and more unique within black and brown black and brown spaces. And, and so, even even if you're in a middle class church, because of your family and background, et cetera, that tends to reach in oftentimes into the inner city. I mean, the, the break isn't total, is it? Or or say it again. Anything. So, in in even if a church is a middle class urban church, right? Because of the family situations that exist in many cases, there's not a total break necessarily from the background that many people have come out of right, to no, reach no. the middle class. Right. What What is happening uh, to the issues that we try to address is in, in those settings, forces come from outside mm-hmm. into uh, to recruit, for example. Mm-hmm. So a person will come in and uh, and we'll get into some of this. Um, I've got some stories. Uh, and they'll begin to just kind of try to proselytize, and, it, and then that, that worldview begins to migrate and, and spread like a virus into those spaces. Okay. So we, we have, we've isolated three issues. I'm sure there are more, but uh, one is called um, Hebrew Israelitism, which may be completely new to a lot of people, uh, or Israelism, and then uh, what we might call um, liberation movements, which tend to to also get into class discussions, and then divination and witchcraft. Uh, those are the three areas that we've um, zeroed on that we want to talk about. Right. So you talk about recruiters coming in. You know, when I hear recruiters, I'm either thinking sports mm-hmm. or uh, or maybe the military. Um, right. You have something else in mind. Right. So oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. So. What we have happening right now within the African American context and in in the Latino context are what's you know Black Hebrew Israelites. Uh, some camps prefer to be called just Hebrew Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually find the reference to being Black offensive. They do not. They they completely reject it. So that should be known. And what has happened is when I say recruit, I mean that they are. Because of their worldview and what they believe, they really believe that they are the true descendants of the Old Testament biblical Israelites. Mm -hmm. And because of that belief, they feel compelled to go out and say, everyone that looks like me, I have to tell them this also. 
And so they're going out and they're recruiting as a result of that. And, that, and that's what I mean by recruiting. They're going out and they're trying to proselytize. It's their form of evangelism. They go to barbershops. They go to uh, blocks on the city. And just wherever they can engage someone, they, they try to do that. And so what is it that they believe and why is it important to – to proselytize in this direction in their mind. Yeah. So what they believe again is that they believe that they are the Israelites of the Old Testament, and there are probably 15 different camps. They continue to splinter. Um, most notably, here recently in our, our our culture, you've seen events with Kanye West and with Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a group called IUIC. IUIC is probably the most organized, most disciplined branch of the Hebrew Israelite camps. Mm-hmm. And they believe, again, that they're Israelites, and as a result, now that's the commonality, and they draw largely from Deuteronomy 28. They read Deuteronomy 28 as a prophecy, Hmm. and because in Deuteronomy 28, it talks about where Moses, it really contextually begins in Deuteronomy 27 Mm -hmm. and goes through 29, but they they don't have a very good hermeneutic at all, Mm -hmm. and so um, they don't really know how to read the text properly. But from Deuteronomy 28, they draw from where Moses just basically warns them, hey, if you do not abide by the law of God, you'll be put on ships and you will be carried over into slavery, things of this nature. Mm-hmm. And so they read into that African-American history through the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. And they just assume that this is talking about us. This is prophecy. The transatlantic slave trade fulfills this prophecy. Therefore, this is who we really are. Mm-hmm. And so and this is why they 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 in some cases, hate African-Americans hmm. uh, because they completely mentally have disassociated themselves uh, from from being, from that. Hmm. And so um, they don't even like being referred to as African. They're not African. They're not black. They are Hebrew Israelites, hmm. full stop. And so with that, from that point on, it varies in terms of the beliefs break down. None of the camps uh, hold a, a Trinitarian view, obviously. They all have a, a oneness, uh, um, Sabellian, Arius-type view of God. Um, and then just, it, I mean, it, you have extremes. You have very moderate Hebrew-Israelite camps that, are, that are, you can dialogue with, and then you have very violent extreme groups. Uh, they all would deny that, but you do have that. So, um, so what's to be gained from this identity? Is it, is it just the separation that it produces? What, what's, the, huh, what's the payoff of understanding supposedly who you are? For black religious identity cults, the real payoff is really a crisis of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're having this across America. David Brooks of the New York Times wrote an article about a crisis of, of boys and men in America. Mm-hmm. Scott Galloway, a Ph.D. out of New York, uh, who deals with marketing uh, in digital marketing, digital spaces, he says in his book, Adrift, that we have an uh, identity crisis in America. David Gergen, uh, who served to five presidents, uh, talked about several years ago in an in article about essay he wrote that there was a crisis of leadership in America. For, for black religious identity cults, it is an identity crisis. And the payoff is, I now find identity mm-hmm. in this. And so that's the real payoff at the root, that, that now I know who I am. Um, because of slavery, they don't deny that they've come that way. Uh, but they just say, well, we were mixed in with Africans. Mm-hmm. And, but we are the true Hebrew Israelites, for those who believe it. And we now have our identity because America stripped us of our tongue. America stripped us of our language. America, And so this is really kind of the root, really, at all of the black religious identity cults. What they all have in common 
is this sense that when they look at the African-American experience in America historically, uh, they feel that, uh, that America has raped uh, those who were walked from the interior of Africa to the west coast of Africa, brought over by slave trades, and just literally taken everything from them. And so what this, the payoff is the belief that I have found, finally found who I am. And so that's the real payoff, a and, sense of identity. Okay, so I have that sense of identity. I'm just going to draw this out a little more. I have this sense of identity, and, and that gives me self-understanding that gives me dignity that gives me pride is that is that where that what the it, it gives me is? all of that it gives me a new world view mm-hmm. i see myself differently and now um i have a since i now feel that i have a sense of where i come from and who i am now i can move forward uh, whatever that looks like um the thing is interesting i take a go back to iuic for example if you look at their doctrine they they tend to be like most cults very shrouded mm-hmm. you have to really get in uh, to kind of learn the deeper diggings, but you will see where uh, Bishop Nathaniel, who's starting to get a little bit more attention now, who's the leader of IUIC, uh, I don't know if he's still now, but he used to be a New York police officer, mm-hmm. New York City police officer. But he, um, you can see where he has been taking from Jehovah's Witness, taking from the Nation of Islam, taking mm-hmm. from Christianity, taking from Judaism, and just kind of on the fly constructing of this theology, and so it's still kind of developing out. I shouldn't say theology, but this worldview, mm-hmm. uh, and so that. But that's that's kind of what it all comes to. Comes to the okay, so that so that's the uh, uh, Israel Israelitism or Israelism. Mm-hmm. Um, another, you said black identity cult. So I take there's more than one. So let me throw in one that we didn't mention we were going to talk about, but just see what you can tell us about it. And that's uh, black Muslims, the whole black Muslim movement. I take it as another example of a black identity it is. cult. It's a black uh, religious identity cult. And to kind of give some framing to that, black speaks of just the universal commonality that they share. Mm-hmm. Uh, religious is the spiritual distinctive that they subscribe to. Mm-hmm. Identity is the dignifying characteristics uh, they give meaning and place to the person, and then the cult is that which emerges as the expression of those beliefs. Uh, so that's what makes up black religious identity cults. And so, yes, the Nation of Islam, for example, would be one, or mm-hmm. the Moore Science Temple mm-hmm. that was established in the late 19th century by Noble Drew Ali. These are examples. You also have Kemet African spirituality, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a dead religion out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are some examples. Um, the Nation of Islam is in decline, has been declined, because it has aged with Louis Farrakhan. Interesting. Many people don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but Louis Farrakhan is in his late 80s, and so he hasn't, he hasn't made a significant address in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like with a, an aging church, an aging pastor, mm-hmm. the nation of Islam has aged with Farrakhan. Mm-hmm. And as he's aged, it has lost its momentum it once had. Creation will not tolerate a vacuum. Mm-hmm. As, as their pursuit and influence began to decline and wane, it gave space for black Hebrew Israelites to rise because that movement has actually been around longer than the Nation of Islam. Interesting. The Nation of Islam began in 1934. Hebrew Israelites be- uh, came about in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, but they've never, they've never been able to get momentum in the African American community um, until really the internet, more than anything else, hmm. has played the biggest role in their rise. So, uh, you know, the interesting thing, of course, is that you have a black identity movement that goes in the direction of identifying with names 
that come out of the Old Testament, and then you got black Muslims, which come in uh, in a direction that identifies with a, a religion that has nothing to do with with Christianity. Mm-hmm. But I'm assuming that both of these are pushbacks on traditional Christianity. Am I reading that right, or is that unrelated to uh, to the way things work? It's a one A and a one B. Okay. One sense, it is a rejection of Christianity because they believe Christianity is the white man's religion. Okay. So, and the 1B part is, again, kind of going back to the way that they see America's treatment of people of color more than anything else is what drives them away from the gospel. Okay. So so that that raises all kinds of questions. It's probably it's his own entire podcast, but I'll introduce it now anyway. And that is, it's probably pretty important for everybody to understand the history that stands behind this sense of alienation mm-hmm. that exists mm-hmm. is that is that a fair statement to make absolutely absolutely cuz cuz my sense is is that is that whereas this is very real for large portions of the black community they know their history they know what they've been through on the one hand mm-hmm. for many whites that part of history is almost like, if it exists, it's almost like a like a thin shadow or a fog. It's not, it's not anything that's in focus, mm-hmm. and yet it has helped, it, it has helped form the dynamics that exist within large portions of the black community in the United States. Is it fair? Uh, fair, very much so. Um, Eric Mason said it best. The uh, the black church exists because the white church failed to be. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the rise of the AME church as a result of Richard Allen just not being able to pray, mm-hmm. you know, that I think today we're mature enough, the culture has kind of caught up a little bit more with the gospel to where we would say, you know, who stopped someone from praying? Mm-hmm. That, that seems absurd now. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand in this historic context, because of the social dynamic, the social dynamic had the church in a case where it was the tail wagging the dog. Mm-hmm. That we have to we have to police the social standards even in the church, and so you had secular, really doctrines of demons, as Paul writes to Timothy in First Timothy four and one, imposing themselves on us within the body of Christ, and the body of Christ embraced it, mm-hmm. and behavior changed, and racism has been so devastating to the sharing of the gospel to all parties, those who oppressed and played a role in dispensing it, and those who are on the receiving end. Uh, it's just been very harmful, and prayerfully, hopefully, the church will eventually come to a place where we can put get past um, the differences just in how we look and see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we could ever do that and deport ourselves with the love that Jesus calls us to in John 13, verse uh, 34, we would have a greater greater impact. The country would look different. Well, uh, uh, one of the ways I think about this, I used I was a history major in college, so um, history is important to me as just a discipline in the humanities. But um, one of the things that that I think I see is is that when you understand the history, when you understand how the history of certain events has wounded certain people and wounded certain communities, Mm. uh, that that actually is a very important thing to understand about the dynamics of what's going on. I mean, it's created the sense of alienation that that leads to this pursuit of dignity. Um, uh, I I, I sometimes say that, um, that there was such a long time in which 
black people were not treated as full people and they were almost invisible mm -hmm. or, or seen more as objects than people, that that impacts the psychology uh, of, of a community. And some of the pushback is, is involved in saying, I not only deserve to be noticed, I demand to be noticed. Absolutely. And, and, and in that, then you get all these dynamics that gum up relationships, which, which have been produced in part by the history that one side has very much experienced and felt, and the other side is almost oblivious to. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and so that produces the challenges so that this, it, handled in the right way, it isn't a competing history. It's a, it's a history to be understood and appreciated for what it has generated. In terms of values of figure of speech, in terms of shrapnel, in terms mm -hmm. of damage that has come as a result of what's taken right. place. Yeah, African American history is American history. It is an impossibility to separate the two. Um, we know we're in the midst of a cultural fight over CRT, and I have yet to hear a coherent definition. Different camps construct their own definition to suit the argument they want to make, uh, but. Again, I think for the Christian, if it's important for us to understand how history has played a role in the acceptance and rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is at the root of my concern, the root of our concern, is that we know that it's not God's will that anyone should perish. And so it's important that, you know, as I say in the book, what you believe matters because there's eternal consequence tied to it. Mm -hmm. And so our goal is to try, try to make a defense of the Christian faith to the objections held by African Americans because they have said, well, if you are Christian and you are Caucasian European and you treat me like this, whatever that is, I don't want it. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted, what we're just trying to do is trying to help them to, one, get a proper understanding of what Christianity really is mm -hmm. and how it is supposed to be deported. Mm -hmm. uh, and to kind of just show that, you know, it's, it's not everybody. Mm -hmm. and so that's part of the effort of what we're trying to do. I see. So, so really, urban apologetics, just to come back to that term for a second, is a way of defending the faith in the midst of these kinds of challenges. Is right. that right? Yes, to the unique questions and objections that uh, African Americans who are post-Christianity have. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to address those questions, give sound, uh, intelligent answers, well-reasoned answers, uh, so that we can kind of disarm them of the ignorance that really shapes their, their view. And the same is true of the Brown Church with the marginalization that sometimes Absolutely. happens in Absolutely. the Latino community. Absolutely. Okay, well, that, that that's helpful. Well, I think that sort of helps us with the black Hebrew-Israelite issue. Let me, let me turn our attention to another one, mm -hmm. which we've labeled um, liber, liberal theology or liberation theology. Now, this one's tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it comes from within the scripture, it emphasizes the themes of justice and liberation, which certainly are part of uh, of the scriptures and are part of what is taught. It 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 uh, is rooted in a concern that says the way in which um, God has built us means that we should be concerned with what's going on around us in the society. The original calling of 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 men and women in Genesis 1 was to manage the creation well mm -hmm. in all its spheres right. and, and to walk in a way that, that uh, honored God and that honored others made in God's image. So, so there's rootage here that is, that is biblical, and there's a lot of biblical language that shows up in the conversation. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm 
I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So talk a little bit about your t your take on uh, on liberation theology and on on what we might also call more literal the a liberal theology because it tends to um, be selective in what it emphasizes out of scripture and mm -hmm. to diminish some features of the scripture that are also there. Right. So uh, liberation theology, as introduced by uh, late Dr. James Cone, is one of the fruits of liberal theology. Mm -hmm. Liberal theology is born um, out of the Enlightenment on, from Friedrich Schleiermacher, mm -hmm. as we know, for those who don't know. And um, what has happened in the African American church, liberation theology is not what it once was. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been seen by some, or the way that it over time kind of matured out, it be, kind of became more of a victimized theology mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the thinking. And that's why it really, people outside the African-American church may think, oh, black churches do liberation theology. Absolutely not so. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know about liberation theology till I came to seminary. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and that's just because it, you know, it just never really took hold because it situated the individual too much as a victim. Mm -hmm. And that was, that left a bad taste, particularly merging out of the civil rights movement and people finding, finally getting some rights in a sense now we can do some things that maybe we haven't done, they were not looking for uh, this, this victimized mindset. And so it didn't really take, although it does linger. Um, and there are pastors who subscribe to it and practice it. Uh, Dave, uh, um, Jeremiah Wright was one of them. Mm -hmm. and in fact, he was a, a cone disciple in many respects uh, and those who followed. Um, but when I talk about liberal theology and its impact uh, – on the African American church, is that what has emerged here now amongst my generation, amongst some, those would be colleagues and contemporaries for myself, uh, is more what Slymark and what would come from from him and the influence of David Hume and Immanuel Kant. That has come to be more and more realized in the Black church now, not as not overwhelmingly, but I would say maybe ten to fifteen percent, which is for me is a big number mm -hmm. of, amongst African American churches. You're having clergy who are beginning to say things, who one, start one with a, with a high view of naturalism and a diminished view of scripture. So they, they, they don't realize when you talk to them, the ones I've spoken to, they don't know who David Hume is, mm -hmm. but they're echoing a, a diminished view in the miraculous. Uh, that's one thing. So a diminished view of the scriptures. Uh, secondly, you have um, a, in some of these spaces, you have there are two or three preachers that come to mind within the African-American context that are advancing the idea 
of salvific inclusivity, mm-hmm. that Jesus is not the only way to be saved. Uh, and they're rejecting uh, ex- uh, the exclusivity of Christ and salvation through Jesus alone. Mm-hmm. And so now you'll hear them say things like, who's to say that you can't worship Allah and be saved, or you can't be a Buddhist? But you know, I hear them say that I know that they're not well read because mm-hmm. Hinduism and Buddhism are non-deistic faiths mm-hmm. or religions. So they don't even know that part. But that that's what I mean when I really talk about liberal theology uh, because it's rising in a way that we haven't heard before. Well, my, the, the framing that, that I'm used to seeing and hearing is this kind of – I'm going to go uh, slaves, mm-hmm. women, uh, sexuality, that kind of intersection where the inclusivity is not necessarily just religious, mm-hmm. but it's also social to some degree. That, yes, and 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 the and where the overhang, you know, liberation theology comes out of uh, Latin America, mm-hmm. and, and and it isn't in part of the American context. But what is shared is this oppressed, uh, oppressor oppressed right. binary, which is the major lens through which um, people approach the space. So you 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 intersect those two things. Um, People who've been marginalized, people who've been pushed to the side, people who've been taken advantage of, however you want to express it, and put it next to their um, discovering their identity, discovering their rights, mm-hmm. and pushing for that. Um, that combination with this idea of being inclusive, um, you put that all together. One, it fits the spirit of our age. Mm-hmm. And, and then secondly, it it obviously is not interacting um, in, a, in a full way with all that the Scripture, scripture says. Yeah. And it isn't that the Scripture doesn't have a concern for issues of justice and how we operate in our society. It certainly does. But the question is, um, what what does what do human beings need in order to function well in society? And one of the things that they need is to be properly related to the living God and to recognize their need for God in order to put themselves in a position to think outside themselves, interact with other people whose situation may be different than their own. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, to, to your point about uh, slavery, women, children, that is something that, too, in the, in the 80s, um, womanist theology began to, yep. or feminist theology first, then womanist theology came in the 90s, emerged, and they kind of took the philosophy of feminism, mm-hmm. and they took the blueprint of black liberation theology mm-hmm. from Cohn and kind of began to build out their own, I forgive me, I can't call it the theology in good conscience, but they began to build out their own philosophy uh, with religious overtones and religious vocabulary uh, over time. Uh, but again, what is what what this type of liberalism in in the African American context is also tied to, similar to the Black religious identity cults, is a sense of oppression. Uh, this is just a really common thread uh, with frustrations within the African American context, and emerging more amongst uh, Latino seminarians and whatnot and, and, and thinkers who are now looking more critically at their journey in America. Mm-hmm. And they're beginning to talk and write, uh, and it's beginning to expand there as well. 
So the challenge becomes uh, identifying something that is that is a part of the history, mm-hmm. and that has produced its effects, mm-hmm. uh, m- many of them uh, destructive and many of them uh, painful, and and. Um, understanding the impact of that, because when you dismiss that impact, the danger is then uh, a person who's been on the on the how can I say this on the short end of the stick in terms of that history will say, "Well, you have no sensitivity to what I've been through at all." Right, right. I, I do want to say that with all that we've covered, that these are still very much uh, though they're have, they're rising. This is still for the African American church. It's still these are still minority spaces. Mm-hmm. They're not the mainstream, they're but not. they're competing spaces. They are competing spaces. That's right. They're absolutely competing spaces. Yeah. I think it has to be said that the African American church is still overwhelmingly very. I don't use the language conservative, but I will say it's very orthodox still in values. Mm-hmm. Um, from Dr. Tony Evans to Dr. James Meeks to Dr. Crawford Loritz mm-hmm. to Blake Wilson, Eric Mason, Jerome mm-hmm. Gay, uh, and you know Brandon Watts, Brandon Washington. All of these others, you know, myself, still preach and teach a, a Christocentric gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still preach about the triune God. We mm-hmm. still preach about family. I mean, Tony Evans and Dr. Loritz have done so much in writing and series on family. And that's still, um, that's still the norm amongst, uh, overwhelmingly amongst African-American pastors. Uh, it is, as I said, black liberation theology, going just to touch back on that again, was never the predominant view. And I don't think that people know that. Mm-hmm. Now, that's why I want to kind of reiterate and say that for those outside the African-American context, that has never been the predominant teaching in the black church. But the, but, uh, and now I'm going to uh, problematize this a little bit, mm-hmm. but the role of sometimes some segments of our media are to pick up on those outside voices oh, absolutely. and lift them up and give them um, more attention. And the, and the voice, even though it's a minority voice within the community, becomes a louder voice. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it can especially in the climate that we're living in but with age of sound bites, uh, it can be seen. You know, I remember when the Jeremiah Wright uh, snippet was leaked, uh, when then-Senator Barack Obama was running for president, you would have thought that that was norm everywhere. Um, now, what he said, have I heard that before in my lifetime from the pulpit? Yes. Uh, but it, it is not the norm as people would think it is and the way that it's expressed and framed. Yeah, and the way you ended that's really important. I mean, on the one hand, the entirety of the black community has had to deal with this history and what it's meant for the black African American community, you know, through its history. Um, you know, I've heard you, you mentioned Tony Evans and Crawford Loritz and I, I, Eric. I've heard them speak to this mm-hmm. directly, but how they frame it is very very different than the framing that you get when it's coming out of a when it's coming out of a, a James Cone for example right. and it isn't and it isn't just to say this it isn't that that there are observations that James Cone is making about the nature of this history and what took place that can be ignored that it's there but the but then how you frame it how you spin it how you present it mm-hmm. what you think the way out of it is all those kinds of things those are other conversations absolutely i i often say when we get into this space it's one thing to analyze the nature of the problem mm-hmm. it's another thing to think about what solves the, the problem that we find ourselves in and that sometimes the analysis of the nature of the problem is something where we can get 
at least more agreement on than perhaps what the solution should be, and it's the solutions that produce the debates. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and sometimes when we don't distinguish that, when we treat it all as one, we actually mess up the conversation. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and uh, you know, you mentioned CRT earlier. That's one of the things that's happening, I think, in the CRT discussion is is that, one, you've got people using the term in very different ways with different me- different meanings. For some people, it's a po- positive term. For some people, it's a negative term. It's like the term woke. For some people, the term's positive. Absolutely. For some people, the term's negative. And, and then, depending on that starting point, you literally could be talking past one another because you're Absolutely. not talking about the same thing. Absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the byproducts of postmodernity. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when you start talking about the popular secular new age um, live your truth, mm-hmm. and people don't realize how dangerous that is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, do you want the pedophile to live their truth? Mm-hmm. You know, is that the kind of society we want? These are hard teachings. Um, and we could go into other things. I mean, do you want the serial killer to live his truth? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's how extreme. That may seem extreme, but that's how it begins to spiral out. Well, once you lose a sense of what's true and what's false and you lose any effort to pursue common ground, that's where you end up. It's, it's like the absence of honor and shame. Absolutely. You lose honor. You lose a sense of honor and shame when you, when you um, dissolve standards. That's, that's the result. Absolutely. So... Um, so that so those are two of the areas. The third area that we want to have, I'm I'm trying to manage our time here, is something completely different. So it's like and it and to me, when I was thinking about this and how to approach it, I was thinking, you know, divination and witchcraft and that whole area, the way in which the spiritual world is is um, perceived in the urban church reminds me of trips I have taken to parts of the world, say, Guatemala or Haiti, where I see these, I I don't know what other word to use, this kind of syncretistic Mm -hmm. view of the spirit world at work. And and I saw saw things in Guatemala that, that I... You know that I would never see or rarely see in the United States, right. but they have been—they've been imported, in one sense, or at least are, are part of the same world as, as that is. Because once you get to the point of, you know, the the rationalist says, "Well, none of that is it. Where you, you're you're just in a fantasy world," mm-hmm. but then. Theology says, no, there are spirits, they're real, there are challenges that are real. And so now the question is, all right, now how do I balance this? Right. So talk a little bit about the role of divination and witchcraft in the, in, uh, in, in the black church. Yeah, so it's not necessarily present in the black church, but in the black community, uh, it is one of the um, – one of these fringe – marginalized movements that's beginning to get a little of attention, mainly amongst African-American women. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, for whatever reason, um, and it's similar to the black religious identity cults, and it kind of it falls into that space in that uh, when you ask what led you to this, I- identity always comes up. Mm-hmm. A connection back to uh, the spirit realm that for them has not been stained by the fingerprints of white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then also it's tied to what their lived experience thus far has been like. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing else has worked for me. Uh, many of them, ironically, within our context, come out of the Episcopal and Catholic Church hmm. that we're finding that are, that are beginning to take interest. When you ask them, well, what mm-hmm. was your background growing up? You'll say, well, I was Episcopal or I was Catholic. Um, you don't hear as much 
Baptists or Methodists, though there are some that mm -hmm. will say, oh, I came from the Baptist church or mm -hmm. I came from AME church. They're rare. Uh, but you'll hear Episcopalian, Catholic, and you will hear that they are coming out of uh, usually apostolic churches uh, uh, also. So, um, which tend to have, you know, what W.E.B. Du Bois called the frenzy, uh, just the, the charismatic worship. But for them, it, it, it was always something deeper. There's prophecy happening and whatnot. And that just kind of helped play a role to lead into other things. Well, I, I, think, I, I think what I'm hearing that's consistent across all this is there is a, um, one, an acceptance of, and two, a recognition that dealing with the reality of the spiritual world is a part of religious experience that has to be taken uh, seriously. And then the question is, all right, how in the world do you get your hands around this and and uh, and understand what's going on in areas where all the forces that you're talking about are, are unseen? Yeah, yeah. To your to your first statement, that is very much a, a, a large part of it because when you look at um, or if you talk to someone in these spaces. Um, you know, candles, crystals have become popular, burning sage, uh, uh, creating potions. Um, and a lot of this ultimately is to, for many of them, to one, it gives them, again, a sense of identity. Mm -hmm. But also they believe that this, you know, praying to ancestors. There's a way of getting some control in there's your a, life. There's a way of getting control and yeah. changing your reality. Right. So if I drink a potion, I can get this person to love me that I want to marry. Right. Or I can... I can maybe have money come my way, uh -huh. you know. So all of this, it's, it's, and that's what makes it, you know, witchcraft divination is that they're trying to find a way to have an experience without God. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily think of it quite like that, yeah. Because they, they talk about ancestors and spirituality, but they're really trying to move in a way, kind of like those at the Tower of Babel. You know, we're going to make our name great uh -huh. without God. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what all of that space attempts so to do. So you're saying this is this is part of the reality on the on the fringes of the urban mm -hmm. context outside, mostly outside the church, right? But it's uh, all these things that we've described, and this is maybe the way to to kind of land this plane. All these forces that we describe put pressure on the church in terms of how that's, it represents itself in the <clears throat> midst of this environment. That's that's exactly right. And the challenge for the church is to unfortunately not enough. Um, not enough churches are seeing these as a, a big enough threat. Hmm. We're not responding fast enough. Mm -hmm. um, a little known fact that in 1974, you know, for example, a Hebrew Israelite went into a church, shot a deacon, and shot a woman on the organ. Her name was Alberta King, and it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother. Hmm. He was shot. She was shot and killed by a Hebrew Israelite. Hmm. Um, this is the kind of you know, and I think back, that was 1974. Where was the AME church? Where was the Nash Baptist Convention? Where were these churches to say, to not treat it as a one off and fringe, but to say, wait a minute, what is it that this person believed? Because in, in his dep deposition, he, he said that my beliefs in Hebrew Israelism led me to my actions. Mm. Uh, because he wanted to punish, he wanted to punish her for giving birth to Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. But again, the thinking behind it, the worldview behind it shaped it. So this can get dangerous. 
So, and, and and what when you're saying the churches aren't aren't taking this seriously enough, what you're saying is, predominantly the, the urban the black urban church is taking this seriously. Now, this is an issue within the community. They need to be aware. Of, and but I'm thinking in the back of my mind, well, if the black urban church is being slow to respond, the rest of the church is probably even less aware of what's going on here. And that's what I would I would I think that. One of the problems that we have is that we do not think Christianly about our corporate identity. Mm -hmm. I think an assault on a church is an assault on the church. Mm -hmm. This is this is my conviction and mm -hmm. the circle that I run in. It's not merely Christians should be alarmed at the assault on on the body of Christ, the assault on people who need the gospel. You know, it should be the business of us all mm -hmm. to prioritize at least making a defense of the faith if we're not evangelizing, mm -hmm. which, I, you know, if it wasn't for church plants in America, all the data from, from NAM to Barna to Pew Research, if it wasn't for church plants, the gospel wouldn't be shared in America. Mm -hmm. Church plants lead in that area. Mm -hmm. um, but the issue that we're facing within the African-American context uh, in Latino context, uh, Santeria is an issue for them that's growing. Mm -hmm. But it, it, if it's long as long as it's looked at as that's your issue and not our issue, mm -hmm. it will continue to be a growing threat. And what is beginning to happen? One of the tactics I just want to share this: IUIC has been conducting since Easter of this year what they're calling a church blitz, mm -hmm. where they are targeting churches and they're going outside the churches before the churches are dismissed. And they are bombarding them with, you know, they're trying to get people pamphlets. They're trying to talk to people. They got loudspeakers, and they're trying to, what are you doing here? Uh, you came out, you know, it's, and uh, they've hit locally. They've that's how the recruiting works. That, that's that's one aspect. But yeah. the part of the blitz, one is a marketing stunt, honestly, because mm -hmm. uh, they record, they use their they cell just phones. Get attention. They're just trying to get attention and kind of expand their brand. Uh, just here locally in Dallas, you know, they. They've gone out to the Potter's House. They've been out to several churches in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, there's actually a video they went to Oak Cliff, but the ministers of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship came out and met them, mm -hmm. and they left quietly. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that's a church. That's a rare case. Mm -hmm. um, the discipleship under Dr. Evans is, is probably a different kind of discipleship than in many spaces, mm -hmm. and they were well equipped, mm -hmm. uh, the ministers, and they were able to handle it quite well. Mm. But this again has to be. And I just wish this was across the board, that the church, if we would just see, not see your problem, my problem, but our problem, mm -hmm. uh, I think that America would look drastically different than what it does right now. So, and part of that involves conversations like the ones we're having of just becoming better aware uh, uh, of one another, by which I mean, uh, in particular, uh, uh, people who are in predominantly white churches having a better understanding of what what the minority experience is, that just having a sense of, of the issues that each community faces that are challenges for it and challenges for believers in those communities that may not be at all like anything, you know, I might face on a regular basis, but that I absolutely need to be aware of in order to understand what my brother or sister in Christ is going through. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that, that just has to be, as you said, conversations that have to happen. And, but the problem with that is, though, we've been saying that, for, since 
pre-emancipation proclamation. Which means that uh, the the one with ears needs to <laughs> let him hear. I yeah. mean, uh, I often say that the first step in good conversations is to actually do a pretty good job of listening. Absolutely. And um, and, and so you know, sometimes we go into a conversation wanting, well, I've got this content that I want to make sure you get, mm-hmm. but before I get to that stage, it might be better for me to stop and listen and get a reading on on what's driving you and why, right. um, so that I'm in a better position to actually be responsive rather than than demanding. For for example, absolutely. Yeah, I think just you know, one solution is something that I don't think has ever been the norm in America amongst the church, but. I think that every African-American pastor and every Caucasian pastor needs to have a real relationship with the counterpart. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, I don't care if you have coffee once a month and agree to have, be, agree to have peaceable, uh, and there'll be times when you disagree, but mm-hmm. to be able to have all conversations on the table. Mm-hmm. We can talk about anything. Let me hear you mm-hmm. and allow me, allow me to be heard mm-hmm. so that we can then prayerfully, hopefully, um, guided by the Word of God, come to solutions that benefit the body of Christ ultimately. Yeah, and th- and those conversations are important. I mean, we've we've this is something we've worked to try and promote at the center to try and get people in dialogue to do several. We've tried to do several podcasts like this where we've had these cross community conversations, really in many ways, mm-hmm. and and to try and 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 listen for what it is that is. Initially unfamiliar because what a lot of people do when they meet with unfamiliarity is they step back and say, oh, I don't know if I want to go there and take the time that it takes mm-hmm. to get familiar with this and to have an appreciation for it, that kind of thing. And and so there becomes a silence that actually is debilitating. Right. And um, and that's and so part of what we're trying to do is is to say no these conversations are worth having these uh, these are these are things worth being aware of learning about etc because there's a segment of the body of Christ that's directly impacted by what's happening mm-hmm. and that's important to understand where that impact is coming from what the challenges are and how the gospel speaks into it yeah yeah. So in your mind, it's a wrap-up, if, if you were to say, so how does the gospel speak into this in your mind? How, do, how, do, how, would, you, how would you say or how would you describe what the calling of the church should be in the midst of these challenges? I think the calling of the church should be what it's always been. That's a call in Ephesians 2 to, for us to, to be one man. Uh, for every one passage that Paul writes about justification, there are five passages on unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ephesians 4, and it you know, comes to mind a whole chapter where he's driving home the point of how important unity is. And as long as there is division in the church, it's just going to be, continue to be a challenge. But the gospel calls us uh, to see one another the way God sees us mm-hmm. and to deport ourselves with the type of agape love that enables us to be uh, living sacrifices for my brother, my sister. That's why the Bible has all that familiar language of family. Uh, and wherever there is a need, as we see in Acts 2 and 4, that we collectively work to meet that need to solve that problem. That's what the gospel has always called us to do. We have failed as the body of Christ you know, over almost 2,000 years to rightly and consistently deport ourselves in that manner. Hmm. 
Well, Zion, I want to thank you for taking the time to come in and talk with us about um, issues that are um, unique to the to the urban church and the challenges that that faces. And we thank you for the kind of ministry that you're trying to uh, plan in churches and others like you. We thank you for the work that you're doing, and, and we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us on the table. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And we're glad you could join us on the table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you want to see other episodes of the table, we have over 500 of them. Voice.dts.edu slash table podcast will take you to the list. And we hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to the table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.